close to perfect. And Jesus basically exposes to him, you don't know the first thing about true holiness and perfection. The man walks away in sadness. And after hearing what Jesus did to this young man, and he would have been considered a fine, upstanding, church-going young man, his disciples say, who can be saved? And Jesus looks them in the eye and says to them, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Essentially, Jesus is teaching his disciples that the only through, only through a living, vital union with himself is salvation possible. In John 15, he teaches the same basic truth. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you hear that? Apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing. But in Christ, you will bear the fruit of holiness and one day perfection. I would even go so far as to say if there is any, any growth in holiness in your life, any step that you've done to overcome any sin, it's the fruit of your union with Christ, period. The moment you detach your pursuit of holiness from your union with Christ, you will inevitably establish a man-made, self-made religion. And this is exactly what Paul is attacking uh, in the Colossian church. Well, with that said, let's read the text. Colossians 3, 1 through 15. If then, or since then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one 
body and be thankful. What you have before you in your sheet, I hope you'll pull that out right now, is a topical arrangement of what I just read to you. The first half of the, of the page, the top half, is a, uh, all of the verses that deal with commands. And it is God, it's Paul painting a picture of what it means to be perfect. It's, it's his, there's more to this in scripture, but this is Paul's hitting what he thinks is important, at least in our relationship to ourselves and others. He says, this is the picture. Then, and only then, at the end, I am going to explore what that pursuit of perfection looks like in Christ. And you just have to figure out why I've done it this way. You can ask me later. I don't have time to mess with that right now. But this is rare that I do this. But I think it's uh, helpful for pedagogical purposes today. The pursuit of perfection is divided by Paul into two categories. Taking off and putting on. So that's, you're going to see that as laid out. Uh, there are evils that must go from your life. And there are good that must be brought into your life. There is good that must be brought into your life. Now, the good that Paul speaks of, he summarizes as things above. They are things that will eternally exist in God's presence. And the evil that must be removed, Paul summarizes as things that are on earth. And they are things that belong to this present world only and will one day cease to exist. At least here. So he says to seek the things that are above, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So in other words, if you want to begin a pursuit of holiness or a pursuit of perfection, it begins with your heart and it begins with your eyes getting focused on something else. Your greatest ambition must be to seek to be like God. Holiness is more than rules. If you think that your Christianity is just keep such and such a rules, you're, you're missing the point. Holiness is the personal character of God. And so I ask you today, just at the beginning, to kind of do a little bit of a gut check. Where are you today? Is your heart today fixed upon pursuing God's perfection? Did you come in here today saying, I want to be perfect as God is perfect? Well, the good news is, because I'm guessing most of you are going, oh, is that, oh, wait a minute, that's not what I came in here thinking. The good news is, the fact that Paul had to tell the Colossian church to seek these things is a pretty good indication that they were having trouble to seek them as well. Right? I mean, you wouldn't have to say seek the things that are above if everybody was already doing that. 
So that your attitude may need adjustment, just like the Colossians' attitude needed adjustment. The goal for the Christian life is not to be kind of good. The goal is perfection, to dwell eternally with God's kingdom and with all God's people in absolute perfection of character. Might be hard to imagine, but that's the goal. And when you trust in Jesus Christ, that is what the goal that he sets you upon, the journey that he sets you upon. As I said already earlier, to be perfect, you must put off. You must put to death that which is evil inside of you. And again, I would stress that the very fact that he has to say this is an assumption that everybody he's talking with still has evil within their heart that they need to put to death. He doesn't say, oh, some of you have mastered this, you're beyond this. All of you. All of you have sin to put to death. Do not be surprised. I don't care how old you are in the Christian faith. You could be experiencing it this very moment. Do not be surprised when evil desires well up inside of you. It is a lifelong struggle to subdue these desires and make them obedient to Christ. Paul basically lists five when he says put to death. He says uh, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which he calls idolatry. And it's not as if sexual immorality is the only sin. It just happens to be a big sin and one in which we all in some sense struggle with. God had designed uh, sexual desire as one of the pinnacles of the marriage relationship, and it's supposed to be very, very pleasurable. And so it's very easy for us to then turn that into something that's not in submission to God. And I would, uh, this is my addition, but I think it's in line with the text, I would add to sexual pleasure also romantic love. Both sexual pleasure and romantic love are designed by God and should be enjoyed in this life. But these desires can become all-consuming. And in the passionate hunger for a better experience, we can turn them into idols. God has designed that sexual pleasure and romantic love should be contained within the covenant bond of marriage between one man and one woman. And I would just say to you today, that these, um, that the experience of sexual pleasure and the experience of romantic love can often be lacking even within marriage. Instead of submitting our desires to God and striving to sacrificially love our spouse, the temptation is to leave our spouse in pursuit of that for which your heart desires. And Paul understands that that can happen to any of us. It certainly happens in difficult marriages, but it can even happen in relatively healthy marriages. I would just try to paint a picture for you that Paul expects the people in his church to be dealing with these things. So the fact that you're dealing with them shouldn't be like, I'm dealing with them. At the same time, Paul does not normalize it. He says it must be put to death. And so you must fight against these desires. 
I would tell you that the struggle can be ongoing. It can be lifelong. Just realize that. It's an ongoing desire to submit your desires to God, but it is something that we are required to continue in the fight to do. Uh, Paul focuses on the passions of romance, but the same principle applies to every one of your desires. Maybe you crave comfort. Maybe you crave the praise from other people. Maybe you crave things. Maybe you crave accomplishments. Maybe you crave security. The list can go on. When we set our hearts on earthly pleasures above our zeal to be like God, we are committing idolatry. John says it well, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Paul, in order to make his point even more strong, says, on account of these, the wrath wrath of God is coming. That's pretty potent. You don't just say, ah, who cares whether I overcome my sin or not. I say that telling you that every Christian throughout their life will always be struggling to subdue their sin. You'll never just master it. But you must stay in the fight because that is what the whole purpose of the gospel is. He's destroying evil and creating a people for himself who love that which is good. Before, me, before we move on, I want to say one more thing. The enjoyment of life's pleasures is not the issue. The issue is the heart that continually craves for more and is never satisfied. We are not content with what God gives us. We refuse to submit our desires to him. And we refuse to trust that he knows best and how he distributes good gifts to his children. That's the issue. So we have struggles with desires that we're trying to fight against within that other people may not even know is going on inside of us. But as Paul continues, hear this. But now you must put them all away. And he expands. He says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And I would say that the second list of vices has less to do with just what's going on internally, although it very much is that, but it also reflects on how you react to people around you, particularly other members of the church. In other words, if you went and lived by yourself somewhere, totally isolated from everyone else, it would be harder to break these sins. You still would, but it would be harder. Um, but the more time you spend with someone, the more you do break these sins, which is why, like, these are the sins that we commit in our homes, right? You, 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 like, you're with your siblings or you're with your parents you know anger yeah yeah I can understand that in my home right Um, so this is all about being in community with the body of Christ and the more that we are with each other the more we will actually experience some of these feelings okay he begins with anger and I'm going to try to give you a, a, a 
definition. I know there's probably more definitions than this, but this is my, this is how I understand when I get angry towards somebody else. When another person acts in some way that is beneath my expectations of them, that's when I get angry. I have an expectation for how you should act. And when you act beneath that, particularly when it affects me, I get angry. That's what causes anger. Someone could be rude to you. They could be inconsiderate. Somehow they don't behave like you think they should. They disappoint you. And in their behavior, they have in some sense robbed you of your peace and your happiness. And therefore, anger wells up. And anger, these all these lead, lead to one another, anger leads to wrath. Right? When you get angry enough, you want the person who has angered you to pay. That's wrath. And you believe that your anger is justified because they hurt you. So you should want to hurt them. You want something bad to happen to them. Guess what that's called? Malice. And as if just wanting something evil to happen to them is not enough, you also want to destroy their reputation. Slander. Do you see how these are fitting together? I'll start because someone just acted in a way beneath your expectation of them. In slandering someone, we impute terrible motives to them. Oh, they did such and such to hurt me. Therefore, they must be motivated by something that's worth damnation. And when we slander, we want to make sure that other people feel about them in the same way we're feeling about them. I actually think that the obscene talk in context, I mean, obscene talk can be related in many ways, but I think the obscene talk here is actually tearing another person down who's a member of the body of Christ. It's obscene to tear down another Christian in the body of Christ. God never ignores the evil in our hearts, but consider for a moment how he treats you. Does he slander you before others? Does he wish malice upon you? Even when God disciplines us, it is always for our good. He seeks to build us up. If your goal is to be like your heavenly father, if your picture of perfection is not just the restraining of your own internal false desires and wrong covetousness desires, but also to treat others in the way that God has treated you, then your standard of perfection is much bigger than just those inward thoughts and again i would tell you that you have to practice putting off you might do the if you're with people in this church they're going to hurt you sorry lewis is at some point i'm going to do something's going to take you off and you might do the same to me it just happens the more you're with people and so you have to have a practice of putting these things off you have to fight to try to say, I'm not going to remain angry. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to slander. You have to fight against those things. And I think this leads to the next section of do not lie to one another. 
In 1 John 1.9, Paul says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we act with one another as if we are not personally struggling with sin, we're actually lying to one another. Now, I'm not saying that we need to go around sharing our deepest, darkest secrets with people, but we should at least in our conversations explain to them, I have not arrived yet. I'm still struggling with deep internal sin. And I'm trying to put it to death and sometimes winning, sometimes failing. And yes, I still get angry. And yes, I'm not right with God. I'm still on the process and the journey. Now, I hope even at this point, you're probably saying, oh my goodness, perfection? I don't even come close. Paul's not even halfway there yet. He hasn't even got to the putting on yet. He says, put on then compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let's follow this list because I think this goes along the same trajectory. Do you know what compassion is? Compassion is a deep down in your gut feeling of sympathy for another person. So go back to that person that just angered you. They have somehow acted beneath your expectation for them. Compassion is to actually have a feeling of sympathy toward the person who has just hurt you. One translation says bowels of mercy. Like deep down in your gut, wanting to extend mercy. Again, remember the goal is perfection, to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. How has God, deep down in his gut, extended mercy to you? If you want to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, then you better start thinking, I need to grow in my compassion towards others when they offend me. And very related to compassion is kindness. Rather than being short with the imperfections of others, you act toward them with generosity and kindness. You are not harsh. I'm telling you that the world's idea of perfection has nothing to do with this kind of stuff. In fact, you'd be called weak to be compassionate and kind. That's why I don't get into politics, by the way. I'm not saying that some people can't. If God calls you to that, good. Just saying, hard for me. It is ironic to me that in a world that disdains as weakness, compassion and mercy and kindness, those are the very things that people hate about God. Humility is next. Now, humility for all of you and myself included, we think of humility by all the things that we've done wrong. I'm humble because I'm a really a dog. And that's why I need to be humble. 
But that's not what he's talking about here. Humility for him is, is being like the Father. Be like your heavenly Father, who he is humble. Be like Christ, who he is humble. Now, God's brand of humility does not come from his imperfections or his weaknesses. God's brand of humility comes from his greatness. And even though he is great and God has done, he is the God of the universe, he comes to the earth to serve, not to be served. Who washed whose feet? That's humility. Jesus wasn't saying that his disciples were better than he was. What he was doing was saying that their interests was what motivated him, not just his interests. Everywhere in this world, people strive to get other people to serve them. I enjoyed a great time down in Charleston with my wife a couple weeks ago. And I said, Robin, I like having people serve me. Going out to eat, you know, doing whatever. I, I like that. That is really good. And I enjoyed it, you know. Tried to tip well. Um, but I'm telling you, people don't like to serve others. God is humble because he thinks about other people's interests more than his own. You want to be like God? You want to be perfect? You better start thinking about others. Meekness is very close to humility. And meekness is strength that accommodates the weakness of others. And the best image I can give to you is two oxen. I've never actually seen this in life. I've read about it. So two oxen pulling a cart. No two oxen are exactly the same strength. Right? So one is going to be stronger than another. But in order for the oxen to pull the cart, you can't expect the ox that is weaker to somehow magically catch up to the person, who, the one who's stronger. But the one who is stronger does have to step back a little bit in his pace to accommodate the weaker. That's meekness. That's not the way we think about things, is it? Man, if you can't keep up, that's your problem. We're going. We can't think that way in the church. Now, I'm guessing that there's not one person in this room that says, oh, I've mastered meekness. Patience is next. Sometimes translated long-suffering. So while we are continually hoping for growth in ourselves and growth in other people, in holiness, guess what? That growth is exceedingly slow. And I would tell you that you need to first learn how to be patient with yourself. But I think also you need to learn how to be patient with others. I mean, if you want to be like Christ. I mean, how often did he say to his disciples, how long do I have to be with you guys? But the fact of the matter is he is with them and he was with them. And he was very patient with them. <clears throat> Think about this. If God fixed you immediately, you would never be able, you'd never have to even display patience. 
You know, we won't have to have patience in glory. That's something you can only have here, right? Bearing with one another? I'll never forget, Brenda Patton. This was 25 years ago. I don't know what, we were at some congregational meeting, something going on, and she says, one thing we do, we, we bear with one another. <laughs> I still remember you saying that, and I think that is true. What that meant is we fall short in a lot of ways. <laughs> See, God's character is to bear with those who are f- way falling short. So if you want to reflect God's character, you want to be like him, then you will learn how to bear with one another. And it just might be that the person next to you's imperfections are perfectly designed by God to help you display bearing with. You see, we want change, and we want it now, and we really want it faster in the people around us than we want it in ourselves. Paul finishes this picture of perfection with three brief statements. Put on love. I mean, like, all these are about love. Put on peace. Let his rule of harmony exist in in the church. And then just be thankful. And I could say a ton about these. But I hope you're just seeing in this big picture, Christianity is not about just keeping a few rules or, or not doing a few things here and doing a few things there. It's about being like God. And we all fall terribly short of that. And in fact, it is impossible left to ourselves. And the question we need to have, and this is why I've separated these two things, is because sometimes when, when, we, when we get into passage like Colossians 3, we'll see all the things about union with Christ, and we'll say, yeah, that's good, and then you'll get to the portion about, oh, i got to be perfect, and you forget everything that you just said about union with Christ. And I really want you to end with union with Christ. Pursuit of holiness in Christ. This is just my experience. It doesn't feel a whole lot different than trying to pursue it in my flesh in the moment. And what I mean by that is it's still just as, it just feels terrible. When you're struggling with an internal sin, it's not like, oh, and I'm in Christ. This is going to feel easy. This is great. And he says, no, it, it is it feels awful. The weight of guilt, the, the struggle to wonder if this is going to overcome me. And, you know, I, I, how can I overcome this anger? All those issues are just as real for those who know that they're in Christ as those who are not, in, or not focused on that. But I do think that there are several things that are changed because you understand union with Christ. One of those is pride. If you really understand union with Christ, if there's any growth in you, it is not you, but God who's done it. And so you are much, patient, much more patient with other people because you know your own failures. <clears throat> so what I'm about to tell you is that it will not enable sanctification and make it easier, but I do believe it will keep you in the fight. I do believe that. I believe that as you focus on some of the things I'm going to say here in just a moment, it will keep you from quitting. I know because I've wanted to quit sometimes. 
And I also believe it'll help you even in the midst of the struggle to take just a little bit of the focus off of yourself and to give you some hope even in the midst of struggle. Our union with Christ is legal and spiritual. He is our covenant head, which means we have a legal bond with him, kind of like a marriage is a legal bond. But it is also a spiritual and mystical bond. There's something that you cannot see, you cannot feel it, but there is some union spiritually between you and Jesus Christ. So much so that you are present with him and he is present with you. And I want to stress that this union is not fixed, it's not based upon how firmly you believe this. I believe I was united to Christ way before I understand the doctrine of union with Christ. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you say, Jesus, save me. He unites you to himself. If it was up to my faith to keep the union or keep it going, then I would fail. My union would be busted. All right, so let's talk about the union. Paul says, you have been raised with Christ. It says if, then, but it really is since you have been raised with Christ, because he said this over and over again. Wherever Jesus is, there you are. And as we speak right now, I can say that Jesus is with us, present here, but I can also tell you that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. So just as much as he is here, you are there. Currently, right now, in the heavenly realm. Now think about how this affects your pursuit of perfection. Do you think existing in glory right now, you look as imperfect up there as you do imperfect down here? No. You are perfect in glory up there with him. You are not only declared righteous, which is awesome in its own right, but you are currently already sharing in the righteousness of Christ in glory. Now this means that in some sense, you are currently down here on a journey that you've already arrived at. Now how does that change my pursuit of perfection? If I'm just down here trying to get there and I'm not there yet, I'm going, I don't know if I can get there. I don't know if I can get there. You have already reached the goal in Christ. That means wherever you are on the path of this journey to perfection, you are already finished the goal. It is complete. It is not a journey that you will fail to reach. It is not as if the strong will get there and the weak won't. We'll get the glory and say, oh yeah, Emmett, you were pretty good. Bridget, you got there. You were better. No, everyone who is in Christ will reach the goal of perfection, period. I think knowing this helps me to keep fighting. Because if you get, you're in a battle and you think you can't win, what happens? 
discouragement. You want to quit. But if you believe that you will win, you will stay in the fight. Secondly, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Often when we read you have died, we think it is experientially as if Jeannie Irwin is already dead to her sin. You've died. No, it's not what it's saying. God has not struck a a spear into your heart and killed your present sinful condition entirely right now. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to tell you to keep putting it to death. And sometimes I think we teach a form of Christianity that if you have those struggles inside of you, you must not even be a Christian. Must not be converted. Struggling with sin? Haven't put it all to death yet? Oh, must not be saved. Get converted. It's not what he's saying. See, Paul combines you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you were thinking of the active work of the Spirit helping you to put sin to death, he wouldn't have said that. He would have said something like, You have died, and the Spirit is right now producing new life in you. Instead, he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that even mean? He's basically saying that your union with Christ is something that nobody can see. In fact, you could be sitting here today and say, Mike's just full of hot air. Are you kidding me? Tyler Nix is right now seated with Christ in glory? That can't be true. I can see him here, but I don't see him there. It's hidden. Just as Christ was hidden before the incarnation. And one day Christ is going to appear, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to appear with him in glory. That doesn't mean his glory. You're going to be glorious with him. And he says that your life is already hidden with him right now. No matter how much you feel like you are chained to your sinful struggles, the truth is that you have been severed from them. We talked about that last week. And you are now seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You no longer belong to this world. You are a part of God's kingdom. You are not a sinner who's trying to be a saint. You are a saint who's trying to bring their current behavior in line with who they are in Christ. A lot of times for the holidays, we go on road trips, right? And you think about, some people more than others, worry about whether you're going to get to your destination. Especially in the wintertime, if you're up north, you wonder if you're going to hit a snowstorm, various things. I remember one particular time, Robin and I were traveling with Jenny from... Canton, Ohio, over to Indianapolis in one of the worst snowstorms we've ever hit, and I'm driving in this little Mazda, and you think, am I going to get there? You know, cars off the road all every time, and you're, you're just, you know, your snow's like building up on your windshield, and anyway, it was scary. Probably still scary to Robin. But just imagine for yourself not going to a Christmas conference, going to a beautiful destination where you can sit by the fireplace and you can enjoy just wonderful time around the fireplace with those you love. If you're already at your destination while you're in the struggle, 
changes it, doesn't it? Now, it doesn't make you just pull off the side of the road and say, I think I'll get there. Just think about it. You still have to drive. You still have to fight. You still have to clean the windshield. You still have to fix the car if it breaks down. All those kind of things are your pursuit of sanctification. But you're already there, enjoying it. That's union with Christ. And I hope in some sense it will keep you from the utter despair that says, I can't do it and I quit. You see, Paul says you have already put off the old self. You have already put on the new self. How can he say that it's already occurred when he's just told him that you have to do it? I'm telling you it's true. I don't even know exactly how that works. But it's already done. You're already there. In these you once walked when you were living in them. It's like, it's like you've jumped into a whole other world. You used to live in the sinful world, but you're not there yet. Yes, I know at times you're still struggling to put sin to death inside of you, but you're living in a whole different realm. And I love this in verse 11. I'm almost done. There is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Here's the thing. I always thought, why is he bring this up in the midst of this section on holiness? And, you know, and I, I just hit me. Whatever you're believing about union with Christ is not just for you as an individual. It's for the whole body of Christ. And if you were a Jew, you look down on the Greeks. If you're a Greek, you look down on the barbarians. If you're a barbarian, you look down on the Scythians. You just keep looking down. And Paul says... Christ is in all. The whole church. The whole body. And I don't want you to necessarily think of someone individually here, but think about your weakest Christian in the church. They're just as much united to Christ as you are. And they will just as much reach that goal as you. Verse 12 helps as God's holy, chosen ones, holy and beloved. I just want to stress that this all is brought about because of the love of God for you. And if there's something that I want you to understand is how much God loves you. I hope you realize that it was only a God who loves you would take a filthy, downridden scoundrel like you and join you to himself. I have a video that we like to watch with Jenny called We Bought a Zoo. Anybody ever watch that one? If you haven't, it's okay. There's a guy named Pat McCready. He's a, he's a, works at the zoo, and uh, he's doing maintenance and stuff, and he's kind of a rough guy. And he has to go into the lion cage to fix a lock. And he's in that cage, and he is absolutely petrified this lion's going to eat him while he does it. And, and uh, there's other people trying to distract the lion. And then it, finally the lion's like right next to him, and he turns around, and he looks at the lion face to face, and he says, I am full of scotch and bitterness and impure thoughts. You do not want to eat me. The lion doesn't eat him, thankfully. Uh, 
But I think we say something similar to God. I am full of evil. I am not the person that I need to be. You do not want to be near to me. Isn't that what P Peter said when he told Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a man of unclean, I'm a sinful man? He says it to him. See, the mystery of mysteries is that God will take those who are evil and bring them next to himself so that his goodness will, will overcome the evil within us. See, the beauty of God's love is that your sin does not scare him away. If, you, if your sin scared Jesus away, you could never be saved. You'd be like a sailing ship stuck in the middle of the Atlantic with no wind. Brothers and sisters, are you trusting in Jesus? Because if you are, you're united to Christ. And if you're united to Christ, you're already seated with him in glory. And that will help you in your daily struggle to try to put sin to death, however imperfectly, today. Amen.